get to introduce somebody that is special, um, and uh, Dr. Izzy Elliott is here with us today, and she's going to be sharing about her ministry at Bangalow Hospital. Uh, that's perhaps a name that you've heard us talk about in the past. Uh, every year uh, since 2013, I travel there and serve uh, our missionary team that's at that hospital. Uh, it's a, a wonderful ministry that we've been able to partner with in serving the team there. And as you'll hear from some of Izzy's stories, it's not an easy place to labor. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of unique challenges, uh, but there is also the opportunity uh, to extend the love of Christ to people who would not otherwise uh, have that opportunity. Uh, Izzy is the kind of person, she's like a uh, 5,000 RPMs kind of person. Uh, she's also a 5,000 RPM kind of person in her relationship with God. Uh, if you want someone to grab onto God and not let go until some kind of answer or resolve happens with that, she's the person you would want uh, praying for you. That's how she is. She prays for her team. Uh, she prays for Nicole and I, and uh, she has a wonderful intercessory ministry in that way, along with being a doctor and all the other things uh, that she does. So it's a real privilege, Izzy, to have you here, and uh, all of you are in for a wonderful treat as you just get to hear some of the ways God has worked and through a lot of hardship as well. So Izzy, we welcome you uh, here to Hope Church, and we're glad you're here to share with us. Good morning. Oh, I love it when people answer. That's the come on in me. My Gavinese teammates over there are laughing as well. I'm really happy to have Kieran, Joanna, Thielander, and Sarah with me this morning. They served on the field with me for a couple of years and are now back serving the Lord in this country. So I um, don't have the kids in here with me today, but I tell the kids when they ask where Gabon is to make themselves a chicken wing, point to their armpit, and that's where Gabon is in the armpit of Africa. <laughs> it's a small country about the size of Colorado, and its population is even smaller. There's only about 1.8 million people in the entire country. And that population is not evenly distributed. Uh, about a third, 600,000, live in the capital city of Libreville. Another third, another 600,000 are divided between the oil mining town on the coast, Port Gentil, and Franceville, which is the manganese mining town in the interior of the country. That leaves only 600,000 people for the entire rest of the country. So if you think about rural Wyoming, that's about what our population density is like. A little bit of the history of the mission. It is a Christian Missionary Alliance uh, hospital and mission started in the 1930s. So the story runs like this. Gabon was part of French Equatorial Africa. It was a French colony, had some Roman Catholic influence, but very little uh, Protestant or evangelical influence. There were missionaries from l'Église Protestante Evangelique of France, but they were only in the north of the country. So if you look back at this map, you see that purple uh, province in the middle, that's where Lambarene is. And they only went as far south as Lambarene. So all of those beige, sort of yellow provinces down farther south, they didn't go there. And they didn't want to go there. But they knew that these people needed Jesus too. So they put out a call to the mission organizations of the world and said, anybody want to take this job? And the Christian Missionary Alliance, and particularly a man named Don Fairley, answered the call. And this is where the stories of God's providence really begin for me. 
Don and a friend of his went down into the interior of the country, dug out canoes on the rivers, and got to Mongolo and met pygmy peoples, actually, were the first people group that they encountered. And they're sitting around a fire with zero communication. The pygmies don't speak French. They don't speak the pygmy languages. They got nothing. And the Lord says to Don, elephant noises. And all of a sudden, his training as an animal trainer in the San Francisco Zoo, prior to going on to Bible school, clicked in, and he started making elephant noises at these people who loved it. And so the entree for the gospel into our country was elephant sounds. Never say the Lord can't use you. So next year, Don came back, brought his family, and the permanent mission station was established at Bongalo. Slowly but surely, people began to come to Christ. By the 1950s, there was a need for a Bible school, a teacher's college there. They started that at Bongalo, training Bible teachers and pastors. By the 1970s, the Gabonese church was actually becoming fairly strong, and the Gabonese believers came back to the mission and said, hey, guess what we need? We need a hospital. Because this is the thing. If you start a hospital here in the south of the country where there is no medical care, people from all over will come to this one central point. We can share the gospel with them. We can treat them in Jesus's name. And then they'll go back out into their villages and share the gospel there. And the CMA said, great idea. We love it. It's a lovely plan. We have no one to send you. And then again, the Lord's providence. There was a group of doctors and nurses in France studying French on their way to Cambodia to start a mission hospital. When? The Khmer Rouge. And they couldn't go anymore because of the war. And so the national office called them up, said, guess what? Not Asia, Africa, being much more obedient missionaries than I am. They said, okay. And they went. And that's how Bangalore was started in 1977. And uh, lest you worry, Cambodia now also has its own medical mission. So today, Bangalore today, it's a 158-bed hospital. We see about 40,000 patients a year. Every one of those patients brings with them a family member, we call a guardian, who takes care of them in the hospital. That means about 80,000 people a year hear the gospel. Our Gabonese chaplains uh, share the gospel every morning. You actually have to meet with them, get your little wooden square from them before you can even come see me, because that's far and away the most important thing, most important part of their day. And that means that 80,000 people hear the gospel every year at Bongalow. And last year, over 1,500 of them professed faith in Christ for the first time. Now, Gabon is beginning to become really a reached country in many ways. Um, the hospital's been there for 40 years, and a lot of people have heard the gospel at that time. So actually, one of the most important things we're doing at this point in time is to train African healthcare evangelists to go back out into parts of Africa that we can never reach to share the gospel. We do that through a nursing school with a general nursing program, advanced nursing training in anesthesia and midwifery, and two residencies, one in general surgery and uh, one in ophthalmology. And this is the point um, in this talk where I have to pause for a moment and ask for your prayers for the Barua family. Elise Barua is an ophthalmologist. He's Congolese, came to Bongalow for his residency and then stayed to help train other ophthalmologists. And he's been at Bongalow 10 years now. He has four children. Last Sunday, his five-year-old son, Joshua, drowned. 
um, which has been an enormous impact on our community and obviously especially on that family. So if you could please be praying for Elise, his wife Micheline, and their three surviving children, as well as our entire community. So what's my part in this? Uh, this is our station cut straight out of the jungle, as you can see. And uh, that red star is on the building where I live. It's the old Bible school. It has mud brick walls, which even Jeff didn't know until this weekend. And uh, I, I live in one of the four apartments in that building. Uh, medically speaking, I am the director of our maternity ward. I teach the midwifery training program. I'm also assistant team leader by election, not by choice. Uh, and uh, fill in in a few other places. Leprosy, right? That fits right along with delivering babies. But, you know, it's the mission field, so you do what you got to do. One of the most common questions that I get asked as a visiting missionary is, all right, how, why, what took you to the field? And uh, my story starts really at birth. I'm the third daughter of a Presbyterian minister. I was taught the doctrines of grace from the womb. I was really blessed to grow up in a faithful family. Um, I was definitely drilled in the catechisms. I could recite the 14th question of the Shorter Catechism, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God long before I was old enough for school. Um, it took me a while to know what want of conformity meant, though. Um, but growing up in that environment, although I understood the sovereignty and the power of God, that we are, you know, we're playing a chess game against the adversary. We're all pieces on that board, and he's going to win. That I had. The grace and the kindness of God, maybe not quite so much. So my second year in medical school, I was part of the Christian Medical and Dental Association group at my university, and our leader encouraged us to go to this place called the Global Missions Health Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And two of my friends, both guys, and I made the drive out from Virginia to Kentucky, went to this little conference, and uh, there I heard this guy talk. And he told an awful, awful story. It was his life story. And it was about everything from his parents being martyred to all of this stuff that happened to him in 30 years as a jungle surgeon. But at every single point in that story, he was able to demonstrate not only how God used those things for his own glory and for the advancement of the kingdom, but how God used all of those things for that man's good. And it was just this crazy idea for me in my you know, Presbyterian frozen chosen mind. And that night, I'm staying with a host family. They split us by gender. So I'm with like seven women I've never met sleeping in a basement floor of some people I've never met. And my only two people I know in this city are like off in another house. And it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting there in my sleeping bag, trying not to rustle, praying to the Lord and saying, all right, I guess, Lord, if you're that powerful and that good, you're worth following. I will go anywhere you want me to go. I will do anything you want me to do, even if it means slogging through the mud in the jungles of Africa. Right? So fast forward about seven years, and uh, there I am, slogging through the mud in the actual jungles of Africa. The same mud, by the way, of that guy who was talking. It was Dave Thompson, founder of our hospital. And uh, I discovered that God was answering a lot more of that prayer than just the mud parts. He was showing me 
not only his power, but also his goodness. Some of you may recognize one of the characters in this uh, picture, Jeff Doringer. Uh, we've been extremely blessed to have him as a team pastor, and he's been a big part of that unraveling for me and the discovery of God's goodness and his power. And uh, as I was even preparing this presentation, I realized he's actually been a part of all of these stories in one way or another. September 2018 was the worst month of my life, hands down. I would rather relive the month where my mom got put on hospice than relive September. Uh, just the, the last week of August, Jeff was there with us for our team retreat, and I sat praying and crying with him and Tyler and Beth for probably 45 minutes, terrified going into this month because I knew we were going to be incredibly shorthanded. The only people in the field were going to be three nursing instructors, a pastor, and me. Even the director of our hospital would be away, and I just knew it was going to be a horrible month, and it was. Everything you can imagine, it all went wrong. Power, water, nursing, community stuff. It was, just, it was bad. So this particular uh, thing that you're looking at, I'm told is called a transfer switch. Now, I know there's at least one electrical engineer in this room. Are there any others? Mm. All right, good. So the, yeah, anyway, this thing on the wall, it's horrible, right? So it's got a lot of wires coming into it. So most of our power comes from the hydroelectric power plant on the waterfall next to the hospital. So the power comes into this thing, and this thing knows that there's power, right? And if there's not, or if the power's not safe somehow, then it thinks, and it says, okay, shut this off and turn on one of our two diesel generators. How it decides, I have no idea. It's like voodoo, okay? The thing is magic. <laughs> so it's a Thursday, and we have these crazy power surges, crazier than normal. I mean, the power surges every day, but like this was particularly bad. And the power goes off and the transfer switch clicks and we go on to diesel power. So Friday, uh, Olivier comes to see me. That guy standing there, his name is Paul. He's the MVP of our team. He understands this horrible machinery. I do not, right? He's not there. He's on home assignment. So Olivier, his right-hand man, comes to see me. Olivier, great. Godly guy. About a sixth grade education. Um, so he doesn't understand the transfer switch either, but he knows we've got a problem. He knows we need fuel to get through the weekend. And he says, Izzy, I got to buy fuel. I'm like, that's great. Go do it. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. I need money to buy fuel. I'm like, okay, good. Let's go talk to the people with the money. It's like, I don't have the money. So we go to the bursar's office. We talk to the people there. I'm like, can we have money to buy fuel? And they're like, well, that's up to you. And I'm like, well, do we have enough money to buy fuel? Because money we don't have a bank in that forest, right? The, the money is 350 miles away. So I'm asking, like, do we have enough cash to buy fuel? And I don't know how much fuel we need or how much it costs. Anyway, they decide we have enough money to buy fuel for the weekend. So I send Olivier off. He buys fuel for the weekend. Monday rolls around. We're still on generator power. This is a problem. We're out of fuel. Olivier is standing in my office again saying, guess what? We're out of fuel. We need more fuel. We may be on this indefinitely. Um, and... Uh, by the way, there's a fuel strike. So I bought all of the diesel within 60 kilometers of the hospital. I'm going to have to go to Lombrinet, which is 250 miles away, to get fuel if you want me to go this time. And also, the lights are on in Dakar, which is the village next to us. So I think the power plant must be working, which means there's probably a problem on our side. 
great. Now, mind you, I had called Pastor Serge, the director of our hospital, 14 times that weekend. 14 times. Basically, every time I looked at my phone, I, I would try to call him. But he was out in the village. His father was dying. He was even more remote than we were. And he had no cell phone service. So I couldn't get through. And I had tried myself going to the power plant and the power company. They wouldn't pay any attention to me. I had sent Gabonese friends over there. They hadn't paid any attention to them because who were they? Oh my goodness. So I go back to the bursar's office. I say, can we have more money? They say, yes, but then we can't pay salaries. I'm like, great. So I can risk Olivier's life. I cannot pay salaries. We still won't have a solution to the problem. This is not okay, right? So I go to God in prayer and I pray one of my, you know, famous intercessory prayers here and say, God, this isn't going to work. Like, <laughs> I can't do this. This is bad. So you got to give me another solution. And he did. So I picked up the phone to call Serge again, 15th time. He answers. He says, Izzy, I got this, which is very much Serge. He calls somebody in the capital city who calls somebody else who calls somebody else who sends me an electrical engineer. So we're standing in that room looking at that wall of wires, and the guy says, oh, this is the problem. Oh, that's great. Good. And then he says, do you have any spare parts? I don't know. So we start opening drawers and cabinets, right, in this room. That's all I got. I have no idea. And we find two spare parts. And I hand them to him, and I say, does one of these help? And he says, yes, that one. And so they take out the broken piece, they put in the new piece, and everything works, and we're fine. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so this particular day um, was after a prayer retreat. So again, Jeff had been there. Um, we had been in the presence of the Lord that weekend. And I would say my most powerful experience of the presence and the love of my Savior happened that Saturday. And Monday morning rolled around and reality struck and I had the worst medical day of my life. If you can imagine a maternal complication, I had it that day. It's about two o'clock in the afternoon. I've already done four surgeries that day. And I'm standing in our delivery room. There are three beds in our delivery room. One, two, three. And the woman in this bed over here has a septic abortion. So she's infected, bleeding, gonna die if I don't take her to the operating room for a DNC. This woman over here has a bleeding placenta previa. She's bleeding to death. The baby inside her is not happy about this. And she's also going to die with her baby if I don't take her to the operating room. So I start counting, right? One patient, two patients, two is bigger than one. I'm taking this lady. So I'm rolling her out of the maternity up the hill because, of course, we built the ORs at the top of the hill and maternity lower down the hill, pushing her up the hill towards the ORs. And I see this other woman come rolling into maternity who looks like death warmed over. And I overhear the midwives talking and I hear the words, sickle cell. Yeah, thank you, you understand. Until we got there, until I got there, sickle cell anemia had a 50% mortality rate for our patients in maternity. This was bad. So I yell at the midwives, get a blood count, come find me in the OR and we keep going. I pull the first baby out. We're just beginning to close when a nursing student comes running into the OR and says, it's nine, meaning her blood count is nine, which is about a quarter of what it should be. 
So I say, get a donor and bring her to the operating room because we don't have a blood bank, right? We have you people, living human beings. That's how we get blood to transfuse. So I abandoned that residence to close by himself and go running down the hallway, open the doors to OR3, and my heart sinks. Because I can tell from the door, this woman is dead. She has no pulse. She is not breathing. This woman is dead on my OR table. There's one other person in the room. I tell that person to start chest compressions. I grab a scalpel, no blade, just a blade, no handle, just the scalpel blade itself, pull the baby out. I start resuscitating the baby because, well, mom's dead. Another person shows up. They take over the baby. Thankfully, another person shows up. They start operating. And I look around and I start counting. And I go, huh, well, 90% of Gabonese patients have O positive blood. You have B positive blood, your hepatitis B positive, and you gave last week. So that makes it me. I'm the only candidate for a blood donor in this room. So I tell them, keep doing chest compressions, and I leave. And I go running down the hill, past maternity, to the lab, lie down on the bed, stick out my arm, say, take my blood. They do. They hand me a nice, warm, fresh bag of my own blood. I go running back up the hill, hand the blood to the nurse who's standing there over the patient, sit down on the floor because I'm about to pass out from my sprint. And I watch the blood go in. And it's just like the good book says, the life is in the blood. That woman's heart started beating. She started breathing on her own. I'm standing in Acts 9. And the next day, I'm on rounds. This woman sits up, talks to me, and says, talk I remember coming to the hospital yesterday, but after that, it gets real fuzzy. Can you fill me in on the details? <sighs> yes, I can. You died. Jesus Christ raised you back to life again. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, I didn't, but I do now. This is my favorite story. This is Kumba. Kumba is the Fulani woman from... Uh, a militantly Muslim nomadic tribe in West Africa, born in Mali, mostly raised in Niger. I met her during her fifth pregnancy. It's about two o'clock in the morning. Midwives call me. They tell me, there's a woman here. She's 21 weeks pregnant. Her water is broken. She's in hard labor. We want you to come down. And I said, guys, you can handle this. It's an abortion. I can't do anything about this. I, you know, hard labor, 21 weeks. We can't save this baby. Like, I, there's nothing for me to do. And they said, no, 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 you need to come down. So I came down, and that's when they told me the rest of her story. She got married about 15, 16, typical for people in her culture. Age 16, she delivered her first baby in Niger. Stillborn. They moved back to Mali, thinking maybe having a baby in the poorest country in the world was a bad idea. Second baby born in Mali, stillborn. She and her husband immigrated to Gabon. Third baby born in Mwila, the capital of our province, stillborn. Fourth baby born in Mwila, stillborn. This was her fifth pregnancy. I delivered her daughter, wrapped her in a blanket, handed her to Kumba, and said, I am so sorry, there's nothing we can do to save this child. Enjoy the few moments that you have with her. And I cried. A few months later, I get this knock on my office door. It's Kumba. And she comes in and 
She reminds me about her story, and she says, Doc, I've delivered babies in three countries, and you're the first person who has ever shown me compassion. Is there anything you can do for the child I'm carrying? And I said, Kumba, I don't know. Medically speaking, five losses is bad news. There's very little we can do for that, even in the United States, let alone over there. But there is one thing I do know, and that's that Jesus Christ is powerful. Can we pray to Jesus for this baby? And she said yes, and we did, and I followed her very closely through that entire pregnancy. Actually even uh, found her a place to stay locally for the last three months of her pregnancy because she was having trouble with the two-hour drive back and forth. And on November 8th, 2017, with Jeff Doringer standing in the back corner of our OR, looking the other direction so he wouldn't pass out, praying, <laughs> little baby Izzy came into this world via C-section. But the story doesn't end there. Kumba's HIV positive. She's one of two uh, Muslim women I've ever met who has that disease. Husband cheated on her early in their marriage and contracted the virus and gave it to her. And so Kumba was terrified that even though she had this child, this first living child after six pregnancies, that her daughter had contracted HIV from her during the pregnancy. In Gabon, we don't have the same technology that you have here in the States. In the States, you can test after six weeks to know if the baby has contracted the disease. In Gabon, we have to wait an entire year. The good news is I got another year of friendship with Kumba as she came back and I visited her. And on the first uh, Thursday in December 2018, she comes running into my office and says, Izzy, Izzy, you've been praying to Jesus, right? And I said, yes, Kumba, I have been praying to Jesus, but you should still go to the lab. So <laughs> gave her the lab slip. She went. A couple hours later, she came back with her hands shaking because she's illiterate and she couldn't read the test results. And I got to read that paper and tell her, baby Izzy is negative for HIV. And we prayed that day together thanking Jesus for the life of her child. Just before I left for the jungle, I was visiting with one of the elders in my home church. His name is Sam. His wife's name is Meg. Sam is six foot six, uh, father of nine, elder in the church, engineer, bridge builder, incredibly responsible guy. And he looks down at me and he says, Izzy, uh, what are you afraid of in moving to the jungle? And I said, uh, responsibility? And he and Meg talked me down for a while. And then Sam said, well, how are you going to count the wins? And I said, Sam, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, Izzy, how are you going to remember that God is in control and the vast majority of the time things go right? Like, Sam, what are you talking about? All right. Izzy, you just went through this whole litany of things about how you're going to do root cause analyses, your right protocols, your plans for discipling the midwives, your plans for evangelization, even your plans for Sunday school. Like, how are you going to remember that God is in control and the vast majority of the time things go right? And I said, Sam, I'm still not tracking with you. Fine. I'm an engineer. We'll do this by the math, right? Okay. Let's say you have 600 deliveries a year. 
Now, let's take a horrible 10% complication rate. That still means that 1,080 healthy moms and babies go home every single year. How are you going to remember that 1,080 is a really big number? I said, huh, okay, I think I understand the concept, but I have no idea how I'm going to do it. He said, that's fine, you'll figure it out when you get there. So I went, and I'd been there a couple of weeks, and I got my office, and I sat down at my desk, uh, Kier's desk, actually, and I looked up at this big white wall in front of me, and I said, ah, that's how I'm going to do it. And I started writing the names of every baby to go home from Mongolo Hospital on that wall. And the first one was Martinian, and that's what the wall looked like when I left on December 27th. You can hardly tell that there are names written on there because I have to be so far back to see them all because there are thousands of names on that wall because God is in control and the vast majority of the time things do go right. And when they don't, that's when I need that wall the most because there are horrible, horrible days in Bungalow. There are days when I come back to that room covered head to toe in blood, sobbing because I have watched a woman die. There are days when I come back to that room after losing a mom and both of her premature twins in the same day. I sit in that room and I cry out to the Lord and he in his gentleness and his kindness meets me and comforts me and turns my eyes back to that wall. And I am reminded that he is faithful and he is good, and he has a plan. And I don't understand how or why it could possibly be part of his plan that we would have the Khmer Rouge, or how it could possibly be his plan that a mother and two children should die on the same day. But he is faithful, and he is good, and he is kind, and he is gentle. And it took this Presbyterian girl moving halfway around the world and living in the jungle to realize it, but it is true. Thank you so much, Izzy, and uh, thank you for sharing your heart, and I know we've all been just moved by... Uh, a God so great and big, Jesus is powerful, and He is moving, and uh, I'm just so thankful you've been able to share with us today. That's really one of the purposes to have something like this, is to connect us with uh, people like Izzy and others who are serving in places, doing work around the world that you're really a part of, and uh, as you support the Great Commission Fund, as you pray, and, and even today, maybe God's stirring your heart in a way to even lead you to another place. Uh, and uh, we just want to pray as we close, open our hearts to the Lord. I know we've been touched by God. And uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And uh, we're going to, I've invited uh, Lillian and Grace are going to sing this song. I really don't think you need to even sing it uh, with them. I just want you to hear them sing it. But it's a song that says that God has called us higher. We could just sit where we're at, the song says, but God has called us higher. You know, he's moving all of us. I don't know how he's moving in your life. And uh, perhaps there's someone here that might be stirred 
to a higher calling or a, a call to move forward, maybe some way in missions, maybe some way in a calling to ministry, or even just a call to reach out to your next door neighbor. I don't know what the call will be today, but God is always calling us higher. And I pray that you might just think about the things that Izzy has said. And even over these next hours, even days, that you might have some time just to process that and uh, seek God and ask him, uh, God, what do you want from me? What's your calling upon me? Am I doing what you want me to do? Are you calling me to something more? And uh, just think about these things as uh, the girls sing this morning.
Heavenly Father, you deserve a fiery love from us, not just to be stirred and never changed, but a heart that would be willing to go where you want us to go, do what you want us to do, live in the presence of you, the King, and be led by your Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for stirring our hearts today. Lead us to higher things. Show us in all of our lives what you want us to do, what the next step is in, in just walking with you and being able to be ambassadors for you in this world. I want to thank you for the Bongalow Hospital, for raising it up in your providence and in your wisdom. It's one of the many thousands, perhaps millions of ways that you're working in this world. And we want to say thank you for the team there and what they're doing. We pray for Dr. Barwa today and his wife, his children. We pray for the, the team that are there with him. Pray for your grace and comfort and that they might hold on to your faithfulness and help them in their grief and in their loss. I pray that somehow you will bring uh, goodness and blessing out of this tragic event here. We pray for the Gabonese people whom you love so dearly. And I want to thank you for the impact that the hospital is having. We pray for your continued work among this people group and that uh, even as they are training these physicians and, and medical workers as evangelists, I pray you'd bless their work and carry the gospel to the remotest places, to people that you love there. I thank you for um, just opening our hearts today and pray that you'll keep moving in each of us. Show us the role that you have us to play in your kingdom work. And thank you for our, again, for our workers around the world. And I pray for your encouragement and blessing and help with the special challenges they face. Bless Izzy and continue to use her for your glory. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>